everyone. Welcome to the Skeptically Inclined Science Podcast. We're on episode 56. I'm your host, Evan. And I'm Tom. And welcome today, wherever you're listening from. I hope you're having a fantastic day. Um, we have a really exciting episode for you. Um, so on today's episode, Tom, what are you going to tell the audience about? What are you going to give us? So today I will talk about this new CRISPR-based gene editing therapy that was approved in the UK under the name of COSGEVI. Okay, interesting. And, and I will also talk about the preventive and uh, therapeutic or curative types of medicine and whether it's all big scam or is there <laughs> some uh, <laughs> intersection and between these two. Okay, right. So you're so basically it's just like are we not treat are we just treating the symptoms rather than actual preventing the disease but yeah basically the... what 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 is the in the essence what is the distance what is the difference between the preventive and curative medicine and you know i i always seen medicine as as curative type of uh, intervention Okay. And I always I've been seeing the preventive aspects of medicine as a just scam. Oh, okay. Because of all the diet supplements and this and that. So, but this there's much more to it okay, than okay. than I with, than I thought. Which so you, thought you will get into. Yeah. Um. Okay. Interesting. That's going to be our yeah. main story then today. And Evan, what uh, are you going it, to? I'm going to do one news story headline. <laughs> um. So the first um. Uh, story headline is U.S. infant mortality has risen for the first time in 20 years. Mm-hmm. Um, we can get into more detail later on. Um, before we do that, how are you? Um, we're again re- recording in a a new look. You're recording in a new location. Yes, I am finally in London. I yeah, started London my calling. Work. That's it. Skeptically uh, inclined calling, isn't it? <laughs> it? Yeah, it's more academic calling, but I like the new place. I like the okay. job. Uh, haven't started any proper work yet, but it's all uh, reading procedures and uh, uh, I have to sign on on multiple forms, you know, like the... Sounds uh, super exciting. Yeah, well, it's a bit boring. Yeah, <laughs> I know you are sarcastic. Great, great topic for <laughs> the podcast. <laughs> And yeah, actually, it is. Started reading some papers about the about the project. Uh, get involved uh, with some meetings, talking to people. Uh, I'm getting my animal handling course uh, okay. done, so I have to stop being afraid of oh, uh, God. mice. Actually, it's 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 all right. I went to the animal testing facility at UCL, and it was load of cages with with mice, most mo- only with mice. And, you know, I didn't have any reaction to it. I hold them. I look at them. It was, uh, they cute. Like, you know, they, <laughs> well, don't, I think get it's a, important. don't get attached to them. I that's, guess that's exactly the... what I was going to say. I think it's important not to get attached, but overall it's great. London is, uh, exceeds my expectations and I haven't even seen the full scope of yeah, the city, yeah. you know, but we, we got a chance to meet up. We met last uh, weekend, yeah, or yeah. the weekend, but we'll just start before this recorded. Yeah. Um, yeah, because we just, I was over there just to see uh, my brother who lives over there. So it was, uh, we just went for a few drinks, really, went for food. We went got some vegan food. Yeah. So you got, you me. know, the good name of a good vegan place now. So. Yeah, no, definitely. I, I might go buy it today. We'll see. Oh, uh, yesterday, yesterday I went to Chelsea just to have a have a look at the neighborhood. Me and, and Chelsea. Yeah, it's, it's, it's good living. 
Yeah. So the really next time I'll be what just... next time I'll be will be video call and you'll be wearing your like uh the Union Jack <laughs> Union God Jack forbid. merch, isn't that as is? <laughs> God God forbid. Um Never maybe, who knows. I uh yeah, so far it's good. Very eager to start actual experimental work, uh get cracking with my project. Something that maybe we can talk about on future episodes, what yeah. I'm gonna be doing. Yeah. I think it's interesting. But anyway, so far so good. That's Excited. Cool. Uh, yeah, how about you? Yeah, not much. <laughs> kind of <laughs> quiet. Uh, yeah, I went to London. We went to see the British, the British histor Hi British History Museum. Is that what it's called? My I guess so. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, it was interesting. I uh, I got a new perspective. I think we were talking about this. Um, there's a bit of a narrative out there now with the the British stole a lot of. Um, of their artifacts in the British Museum. And uh, I can't believe I have to defend them <laughs> here. But I, I think the... Well, well, we went to see the... I seen the Egyptian section and the Greek section. And you see where the the Pantheon... Um, you've seen a lot of the artifacts that were there. And I think a lot of people just assume that the Brits just stole it from them. Whereas what really did happen was that... They, they, the Pantheon had been blown up and it was just left there in ruins for like 200 years. And I think the Brits came along and seen that it was this amazing building was just like left in, in ruins. So they decided to try and bring some of it back to preserve it. And, uh, and they paid for it. They paid for it. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And it's, um, <coughs> and because of that, they, I think it's only later on in, in the, in the years that, Greece now have come to realize how important that building is and how historical it was and now they're like we should have we should have them back and we should we want to preserve it now it's like but why did you not want to do it before that which I don't know like there maybe is an argument that maybe they should be giving it back now when they want it back but how would they would they have preserved it as as well as they I could have I, maybe I'm triggering a lot of Greeks right now <laughs> but um yeah, I, I think thought it was they were they were in the tricky position, you know, like yeah. the, uh, politically, uh, political unrest in a way. Maybe yeah, you know, yeah. no one, no one's priority is taking care of old buildings exactly when, uh, at the time. Yeah, yeah when they're the when your empire just had the money when you're in tough times, the willingness to do it. Yeah. Anyway, and, and it was an interesting. The, oh. the other fun fact was, um, mm -hmm. it's interesting when the British brought back all the Greek ruins. It actually inspired a lot of the architecture for that time like so in the 1800s you would see like the what the what you would see the the greek kind of type of architecture it inspired that then when it came back and then when you in america like the i don't know the congress the neoclassical style yeah yeah i don't know what it's called <laughs> i no idea what that that name is but anyways yeah all that kind of they caught the big columns the the impressive architecture that you would like the typical greek architecture that you see in america and in britain that was all inspired because of that so it's funny like if they had never brought that back we would never have seen their architecture prosper in that time and and then buildings be present now today so i kind of i found it interesting to to see like the yeah the butterfly butterfly effect of uh of these and it's hugely impressive when you look at it right yeah though it's, i think it's cool that we're able to like 
what the fact that they brought it back inspired these really cool buildings mm. that are really in, look, great to sit look at um like who knows what what would have continued on architecturally wise if that didn't happen when we just got boring um boring buildings boring or modern art inter uh, take on it you know yeah, which is yeah. uh yeah so that's why i think that ancient history is the best history <laughs> yeah 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 it's a lot to learn but we're that's not our type of podcast <laughs> no 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 uh let's, so let's finish that tangent yeah so um speaking of <laughs> how do i segue now <laughs> um so yeah from speaking of in more in our field Yes. Um, so yeah, I'll I'll talk about the headline I mentioned. So U.S. infant mortality has risen for the first time in twenty years. So is that surprised you to hear that headline? Uh, a little bit. Yeah. In especially because it's in the developed country. Yeah. Exactly. Something, yeah. something that you don't expect to see. Um. Yeah. So like, infant mortality. It's the death of an infant before the infant's first birthday. So infant infant mortality rate or IMR. It's the number of deaths per thousand live births of children under one year of age. Um, the rate for a given region is the number of children dying under one year year of age divided by the number of live births during the year multiplied by a thousand. So that's how they calculate it. Uh, mm-hmm. There are three main leading causes of infant mortality. So conditions related to preterm birth, congenital abnormalities and sudden infant death syndrome. And it's usually used as an indicator of the level of a health of a, in a country um and but like uh, so i'm going to go through some figures for other countries as well but it is important to note that there can be differences in reporting because these numbers they mightn't be comparable because um it's it usually you need to record live births and some countries they don't have it that standard isn't followed so it can actually artificially lower their their infant mortality mm-hmm. rate so like in a way sometimes that maybe the american is more accurate than countries that are that are saying they have lower rates but they're just not reporting it Mm-hmm. So, what do you think? What country do you think has the lowest infant mortality rate? So, this otherwise, what country has what country has the number of infants surviving one the most infants surviving one year of age? Uh, yeah, yeah. This is based uh, on I, 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 you. I don't think you're going to get it, but uh, this is based okay, on say, well, the World Factbook. They did a 2020 estimate. So, this is based on 2020. I'm gonna the American number is the more up to date like from 2022 so i would want to say uh scandinavians one of the scandinavian countries it isn't countries. actually one of the scandinavians is it not it's mm, not no okay well then i'm gonna say canada and that's my last guess no actually it's slovenia that's what he's yeah funny slovenia yeah i don't know how what i i think there's obviously something um not right based on that actually okay maybe if i look at the okay i think a better so i think a better way of monitoring is that if you just rather than looking per year you look over a a number of years so like from for so the most recent facts would be from 2015 to 2020 actually if you the the fig the country that actually has the lowest for this one is iceland so okay. if that's not that surprising, I suppose, because um, the country has such a low population that um, generally their date, the rates of births are so low anyways. Yeah. Um, yeah. So Iceland, Hong Kong's number two and Singapore's number three. 
and Finland. Oh yeah, before. complete. I don't know why I did not think about the the Asian market. Yeah, Asian, um, yeah, Hong Kong or like China. Um, can I, I? Yeah, go on. Can I ask you a question about the American thing? Yeah, and um, so, so so they have an increase in child mortality, and is that is that because the, there's more children dying, or is it because there's a lesser number of children being born? It could you know? be a bit of both. Yeah, for sure. Okay. Um, okay. But like, uh, it's not just down to, I suppose it can be, like, generally you would think the less births, the less deaths. You should have a, a consistent number like it should be a consistent reduced right. or a stable figure like w one change in uh should, should mean the other should kind of parallel change right um okay. so that could be uh that's that's what one thing you would should expect um are could you guess what number ireland is <laughs> this percentage wise no the the, or... the imr or like a number like in the world you're oh, what number in the world? Yeah. Okay. Uh, uh, okay. I don't know. Top ten? No. Top twenty, at least seventeen. Seventeen. Okay. So this okay. is based on the 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 race from twenty fifteen to twenty twenty, and then the US. Where would you think they, that would be? So they mm, they have dropped obviously because that's, yeah. that's the topic. Uh, but they they can be they can be as as bad as you know the extremely developing countries. So yeah. I'm gonna okay. I'm just gonna put them in top twenty, and I'm gonna say, uh, well they they were probably very high before that. So maybe now they are like what, fifteen something like that. Oh, you think they had a better than Ireland? <laughs> yeah. No, no. Oh, okay. It's worse than Ireland. Well, God, okay, well, I think you had a higher. Thing of higher yeah. thing of US than me. So I'm gonna I'm gonna say twenty seven then completely. Uh, no, changed. it it's fifty five. What? Yeah, yeah. Between the UAE and Cayman Islands. <laughs> so what is driving this? What what is so, happening? Um, yeah. So basically, it's so it's the. It's been reported that infant mortality in the U.S. rose by 3% in 2022, increasing for the first time in 20 years from 5.44 per live births in 2021 to 5.60. The Center for Disease and Control and Prevention has reported. So basically, for every 1,000 births, on average, roughly six child children are dying, and this has gone up. And, and this oh. is in stark contrast to a decline of 22% in infant mortality between 22 2002 and 2021 so it's actually been decreasing 22 percent from 20, 2002 to 20, 2021 yeah, like it should be consistent like when health things are improving you would think this should be consistently staying the same or going down so this is actually a significant increase in the infant mortality rate in the u.s um, and yeah, this increases the part of worsening U.S. health in almost every area when compared to with other prosperous industrial nations. Um, so the life expectancy has actually fallen as well to 76.4 in 2021. It's at the lowest level since 1996. Um, and it's like, yeah, maternity morta maternal mortality is 70 per 100,000 life births for black women who face two and a half times the risk of dying during pregnancy, childbirth, and the year postpartum 
compared to like white women so it's it's pretty crazy that it's like the the life expectancy is going down i think that's with covid but like if this um mortality rate is going up as well that's also contributing to the life expectancy falling um so it's it's very it's very it's very it's crazy it's i hate to say i don't want to say crazy it's very weird to say like why is disturbing what's going on like um so basically they're saying that um it says, yeah, this increase that hits the statistical significant mark indicates that this was a bigger jump than we've had in the last past 20 years. That is something we need to keep an eye on to see if it's just one year anomaly or the start of increasing rates. So basically, the, it has in, the mortality has increased significantly among infants born to American Indian and Alaskan Native non-Hispanic mothers and among infants born to white non-Hispanic mothers as well. Um infant mortality is also increased for black native american native hawaiian or other pacific islanders so basically it's like across the board there's been it's increases except for the only rate that has decreases for asian mothers so i don't know what's it's just obviously uh people of color and even white some white women for white people the the mm. the the rate has increased so i think it's definitely more significant among people of color though and i think there's obviously an indicator that services for these people are suffering and that could be a reason why um i I would also like to see stratification based on the uh uh, social class yeah exactly i'd I'd say yeah that's another reason i'd say like people are are suffering more than ever can't afford it and i think this is causing that class people who are a lower class are struggling yeah. to get proper health services yeah especially in america that's what i was thinking because um, we all well you, you hear about how expensive and uh incompassionate the american health system is so yeah maybe if you can't afford it this these these are the consequences that start creeping out yeah and actually it was interesting the rise in mortality increased significantly only for male infants who all have always had higher rates than female infants. So I always thought, I thought that was kind of interesting as well, that it's primarily seen in males. I wonder, could, is there a reason, could, can they establish why that is? Um, two of the 10 leading That's causes of death were responsible for the increase in mortality were maternal complications of bacterial sepsis of the newborn. Um, maternal complications may reflect the worsening state of care for pregnant women, about 6 million of whom live in areas devoid of maternal care. Also, pregnant women have increasing rates of obesity, diabetes, hypertension, and other conditions. Um, and like, uh, infant mortality has only decreased significantly in one state, Nevada, and it's increased significantly in Georgia, Iowa, Missouri, and Texas. So yeah, people's lifestyles are, are wor- people have worse maternal health care. They can't afford it. They're also like, more likely to be obese have other health problems i think this whole picture is just causing this increase yeah. um in the in in, mater- in infant deaths for for pregnant mothers like um and it's all comes down to because they just can't get the proper health care services that are, that are needed like maybe they just can't they don't realize that they need to like have better lifestyles before they when they are pregnant lose weight uh, manage their diabetes properly um make sure that they don't have hypertension all these things i think yeah i, I guess it's easy to say but 
when you when you're in it, you know. Um, yeah, but it's like, it, I, it just it's a I do think it's a sign. Like it's it's insane how like it it's a trend. Like they their um uh the life expectancy is dropping. Their infant mortality is rising. Like I know people it always is. like oh, but like ev- everyone us- usually says America's getting worse, but that's not the case. And I'm like, this is an indicator that things are getting bad there when their healthcare systems are these are indicators for their health um, outcomes in their country and they are not good. Um, it is the responsibility of the state to to help and assist. You can't, yeah. like someone like, someone yeah. obese or diabetes, they can't just like pull themselves by the bootstraps and just... Yeah, sometimes they need, they, well, yeah, they need help, especially for pregnant mothers, they need yeah. better, better services to help manage yeah. it, especially with diabetes because it has such like other large health outcomes um and health consequences because of it so yeah it's just um it, it, it's definitely a sign that things aren't right in america so <laughs> sorry for our american listeners i think i i, I don't know i think things are, are not i think things are going to get worse before they get better as well with the way that they're treating pregnant women and accesses to abortions and stuff like that so like if people if women can't even get access to abortions um this definitely is going to keep increasing yeah because they're not going to offer them the maternal care that they need so yeah because there is no such a thing as maternity uh maternity uh leave is it or it's very limited it's very limited yeah 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 and and paternity leave is something that it's barely being introduced over there right yeah i don't think that's even a thing and it's still frowned upon well yeah like they'd have to take it out on annual leave which isn't even a they don't even get much annual leave over there like eight days or something or something ridiculously low it's all it's crazy how it's just propaganda that they are the greatest country ever and then this stuff happens so yeah it's the the greatest experiment or uh, they call themselves is, is it that is yeah um experiments don't work out yeah so yeah that's that was the one of the news that's stories. awful yeah okay anyways let's move on thanks mate Love on it. to like a positive some positive okay science. let's talk about let's talk about science that actually helps people <laughs> okay that's <laughs> that's huge yeah. So two days ago, today is the today is the nineteenth of November as of the recording. Two days ago, there was a, a press release announcement from uh, Vertex and CRISPR Therapeutics, where they um, advertised that they have achieved a groundbreaking milestone with the approval of the first CRISPR Cas9 gene editing therapy. Uh, this treatment is authorized. Um, for the use in sickle cell disease and transfusion-dependent beta thalassemia. And this is huge because these pa- these people experience uh, enormous pain, especially during the, um, during the uh, crises where they're, uh, when their cells sickle, especially for the sickle cell patients where the cell undergo the sickling process and it is very painful for them. They rely on multiple uh, blood transfusions just to function in the society and um, even though transfusions are quite a reliable way of treating those patients it is it is a huge toll yeah. on them you know they are they can be predisposed to uh, uh, 
blood-related infections, you know, the HIV, uh, hepatitis. There's always risk, although there's a lot of... It's improved a lot. Uh, yeah. There's a lot of care put into it to make sure that the blood that is being transfused is sup it's quote-unquote clean. Uh, but also multiple transfusions expo expose you to the risk of becoming human, immunized to, uh, to different blood yeah. groups. And, you know, with time, it has become trickier and trickier to find suitable uh, blood, blood yeah. uh, supply for these patients. So a bit of a background. Vertex was established in uh, 1989 and started collaborating with CRISPR Therapeutics in 2015. CRISPR Therapeutic was actually founded in 2013 by Emmanuel Marie, his uh, French names, you know, Emmanuel, Emmanuelle Marie Charpentier. She is, uh, she Googler. received the Nobel Prize in 2020 f in chemistry for developing the CRISPR method. Oh, okay. She, so she was, so, was she the one alongside Donda? <laughs> what? Yeah. Okay. That's, that's the, I that's always the remember ladies. Donda anyways. That's an easy one to remember. Yeah. It's, uh, it's, uh, it's even a, though yeah, I think there's still a controversy. Is that even that whole controversy about who invented it first? There was also a Spanish scientist, I think, in there somewhere. I think, there, yeah, there was. Uh, I don't know if that's like if there was like cases about that because I think they were trying to patent it or something. Um, so I don't know well, if that's been settled or whatever. Sure, look, it's uh, it's three years ago already. They got the Nobel Prize. I don't think anyone is gonna be like uh, give it back now. <laughs> yeah. Well. No, yeah. Okay. okay. Yeah. Yeah. It's settled. But fair play to her for believing in the method, and you know. She, uh, she set up the company in 2013. Yeah. Uh, start collaborating with Vertex, put loads of money into it. And um, so what led to the approval of this, um, of this medication? So um, the name of the drug is Casjevi, as we try to figure out yeah. later on. So the approval followed promising results from uh, clinical trials involving one-time intravenous infusion. So in the sickle cell trial, 20 out of, the, out of 29 participants experienced complete relief from deliberating pain episodes for at least one year after the treatment. And in the transfusion-dependent thalassemia, 39 out of 42 patients did not require red blood cell transfusion for at least one year. Wow, that's really good, with, man. Such an improvement. With, that's great. With 70% reduction in transfusion need for the remaining um for the remaining three participants. And actually being transfusion independent for 12 consecutive months was the primary outcome of okay, the clinical yeah, trial. Right. So uh, therefore they have been met. Yeah. And of course, given that these patients uh, went on for 12 months, uh, it is expected that they will also experience lifelong benefits, yeah, yeah. which means that they be lifelong uh, transfusion free uh, patients. I wonder is that the was that a good measure outcome to look at the amount of need for transfusions? I, sp I suppose what uh, what other ones can you really look at? I suppose the sickling episodes, but can you really... The sickling episode in the sickle cell disease patients, um, I guess the general well-being of how, yeah. how you are doing. Would it be the uh, best outcome think, you to know, look at to see if it's successful or not? But I suppose, look, they... I think it is really relevant for these patients yeah. because they, uh, because as I said, they, they require a frequent blood transfusion. It's not that they have to just get one a year. They they come on a repetitive uh, manner into the transfusion centers. 
with age they don't want the older they get you know especially when they enter like the teenage years adolescence they in their rebellious phase they might not uh, do it so frequently because of reasons you know and that's all that's definitely it's not in their favor yeah. um and even if they do stick to the transfusion regimen it, it is not comfortable to say that at least like you know you always have to take some time out of your agenda come in get a transfusion there's it's just you'll be better off without yeah it. so i think i think being able to be 12 months transfusion free is a relevant scientific primary outcome as well as a relevant patient uh uh primary outcome relevant to a patient uh okay. primary outcome so on that on that end i think uh well the study i think was well designed um so who can receive this drug now so only people in the uk are eligible for this drug because the drug was approved by the uh, british um yeah by the by the british regulatory agency uh, so you have to be 12 or older you have to suffer from sickle cell disease with recurrent vaso-occlusive vaso-occlusive crises or uh, have transfusion dependent thalassemia what what else else you have to fulfill uh the 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 human leukocyte antigen matched related hematopoietic stem cell donor is not available for you and uh, approximately right now there is 2000 patients that exist in the UK that, that are could eligible. benefit from this uh, from this treatment okay. so it's still kind of small number i suppose it's such an expensive treatment really that they can't expand it and i suppose they have to see how it goes yes on the one hand it's good that there is no more people suffering from sickle cell disease and uh, and beta thalassemia but you know uh, these patients are being born and at some point they will be 12 or older so i think this poll will get larger uh, well if not larger the the people will keep becoming i think they're going to they will i'd say they will roll back like if they want to just do a baseline and see how that gets on first and i think That's if it, if it improves or if the if it's the outcomes are amazing, which so far they seem to be, then I'd say they will expand it to increase the, either reduce the age or, um, maybe get rid of some of the other limitations or the limits for preventing to get lower it. some of the yeah yeah lower the recruiting criteria. Interestingly, the this treatment uh, as a universal mode of actions for both diseases, well um, it. Uh, the target the targeted gene is BC, BCL11A. It's a form of a repressor gene that represses the production of fetal hemoglobin. Mm, yeah. Um, so uh, patient uh, patient that is eligible for the treatment, uh, it involves a tra- extraction of blood producing stem cells uh, from his bone ma- his or her bone marrow. Then the CRISPR Cas system is used to silence this BCL11A gene. By silencing this gene, it's, the fetal hemoglobin is being produced. Okay. Yeah, it's being switched on. Normally, it's being switched off after yeah, you. Yeah. Um, I think if I just uh, wanted to say, like, if age. people wanted to find out more, we did talk about this on episode forty-three. Gen- genie in a bottle. Um, genie in a bottle. <laughs> so yeah, if you wanted to find out more, I did discuss it on this. This is before it was just was a clinical trial, and I I think I've discussed yeah. about the hemoglobin. Our fetal hemoglobin um, and all that kind of stuff. 
Uh, perfect. So go back to that if you episode want more if you want to know the mechanism yeah. a little bit more. At the end of the day, because of the hemoglobin F, these patients do not experience these uh, symptoms of sickle cell disease and thalassemia. Now, treatment cost. Yeah. Do you want to have a? Do you want to have a guess? Oh God, hundred k. Two million oh, per patient. Jesus Christ. There you are. No wonder it's there so limited, are. like. Yeah. So uh, the price of cost JV in the United Kingdom has not been finalized yet, but estimates suggest it could be around two million dollars per patient, aligning with the pricing of other gene therapies. So, so gene you know, therapies are so insanely expensive right now. It's it's so at the time. It's at the real. I usually it's like the when the sequ they did sequencing it was like super high the cost was, and then it'll come down. So hopefully, mm. it will come down as well. Um, I, I, I don't, I don't know sure about part that. of it that, uh, no, no, I, I, I'm sure that the price of it will come down, but like the high price at, at right now, I'm just thinking like whether the, um, all the people, all the companies that funded the clinical trial and participated in the development, do they want to get their money back? And well, that's obviously, why, yeah, it's a company, it's a private company. Um, yeah, I know, but like, but the, you know, the thing is, it's like two million per patient. The thing is, is though you they can justify it because if you look at the the health costs like blood transfusions how much that costs per year like episodes in the that have to go into a hospital to get treatment all that kind of stuff how much does that cost the the health system per year so i'm sure that could be like in the millions as well so they're like well you're actually so even though it's two million you're saving such and such okay okay but but who, what what group what uh, population group is most affected by the sickle cell disease and beta thalassemia? It's usually Middle Eastern or African, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, and uh, they don't exactly make a bank in UK, right? I'm sure there is there is some millionaires whose children are uh, affected by it, but these people from these backgrounds they don't they just most likely like working class middle. Oh class yeah, but like they're not going to have to pay. Well, we don't know if it's gonna be funded yet. But it got a, oh, oh, it's got approved, so I presume it's funded. It's approved to be used. The NHS has to agree a deal with the, with the company. Yeah, whether it's gonna okay. be right, yeah right. covered, we don't. I don't know that. Mm, okay, right. Sorry. Okay, so it's a it's a scientific success that this first CRISPR therapy is available and we can treat it people. But, like, who's going to pay for it? Mm. Well, I'm sure that they'll have to, if they want their product on, to make money, they're going to have to negotiate deals with the NHS that it can be used. Because they can't, they, like, it's just, them getting approval is just the first step, so. Um, well, hopefully, because uh, as when I was typing my thesis and I was writing about Luxtorna, the uh, AAV-based gene replacement therapy for LCA, mm. uh, it's still above a million dollars, I think. Yeah, yeah, but that's like yeah, oh yeah. Uh, so it still it still hasn't gone down, is that what you're saying? Well, I well, it's no, it hasn't. I I think like everything that is, everything is that anything that is above one million is kind of like out of reach for like mm. a lot of people. Yeah, but like I think I know from what you're saying about the the background of people who who are most most need this treatment like i don't think it'll matter uh like it it, it, it they won't have to pay that money it's the governments that'll have to pay and it's up to them if they decide well, so. they have to decide if they're willing to if the cost benefit 
is worth it and i think in this case it's going to be worth it because it's not i kind of comparing it to this like luxterna which doesn't have as bit massive pressure on the health system this would have a huge pressure like you've we've talked about it loads of times how it's they're struggling to get blood donors now really difficult they're nearly going to have to pay i'd say people to give blood so like if you've taken that pressure off how much is that worth how much is you taking off the health system like i think there that that there is a real cost you can use to measure that so um it's crap yeah it's all horrible that it's so expensive that people who might need it um mightn't get mightn't get it um i thought because they were you were when they you listed the limitations i thought that was who the nhs had said but this is basically the the health the approval the regulatory just basically who can yeah who can mm. so maybe they can change that can... like that's because i thought with the nhs they would they would have to try nar- narrow it down again to keep the cost limit but like so because i can only see it going further limiting to who can really benefit so i don't know yeah i think with time the the regulation can change yeah hopefully i hope with age it you can know? change like that seems like yeah. um can i actually the one question i had was um is it do they have to get um blood taken off like blood marrow bone marrow taken off them that's how it works is it and the, you have the to stem cells. you have to collect the you have to collect the hematopoietic oh, okay. stem cells you added you can't so you can't vivo. you can't okay so it's not just a you come in we give you a bag of treat of a drug and then no then you have to mail or deplete the patients to make room for oh, the for okay. the to put for the ontologous okay. graft right and put you know, put it so it is then. pretty and intensive they, yeah so you know the age limitation could be because you know mm. the younger children They're more likely to get it'd be hard on yeah. them but then i'm not a physician so i don't really know well that's what uh, i would kind think of that yeah that yeah. that part of it yeah but it is an ex vivo treatment you do edit the cells um you do you do edit patient cells outside that's and then the, you put oh them that's back. the big problem with these isn't it gene to editing or gene therapy uh drugs is that you have to do a lot of ex vivo manipulation and and uh it's not just simple like oh inject the drug into them and that's it or take a pill um i was i was in a journal club last week and they were actually discussing paper that attempted to uh, it was actually uh drew weissman group oh, okay. um, they were trying to actually do uh, in vivo gene editing and uh, and when they compared it to the ex vivo so the ex vivo gene editing in mice it was like 80 percent success rate mm. in terms of the edited cells and then pop and then how they expanded inside the animal and then when they attempted the same technique but to do in it vivo. inside in vivo it dropped down to three percent so yeah yeah and i think it was also it was also for sickle cell disease Mm, mm, yeah 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 Um, i suppose look it's not that surprising yeah um so it's still uh still a little bit work to do look it's a positive it's a positive overall it is a positive we're we're kind of yeah we're we're um we're spoiled for the work that's been done we want more so um i think it's to have this is a first step so it's really cool to see like we mentioned it before in the podcast and now it's actually gone on and has been the first CRISPR approved so like this is a real life um measure of like CRISPR actually having a benefit for people because i know it's like something that's always been talked about I think you hear, I say you hear, I say you heard it in your PhD, so like every day, <laughs> CRISPR, like, 
and it's like but where where is the comment where are we going with it like where, where is the actual real life benefit and we actually have something now so hopefully it's here now hopefully it'll be like uh could be exponential do you think it do you think it could be the future or will it will it end up being over super no, mrna is the future, MRNA is the future. <laughs> yeah no i think there is a well Crisp, crispr sounds nice but there is a it's very personalized treatment, you know, in terms of what variants can be corrected and which variants cannot yeah. be corrected. Certain certain base substitutions are easier to tackle than the others, and um, it's a it's a fantastic in the fantastic platform if you want to perform this uh, N of one trials. We know when you have very, a, a very, personally yeah. designed yeah. drug for one person, but population wise treatments like you know, of course there's these mutations that are like uh, would represent let's say majority of people suffering from the disease i think in the in the um what's the irish disease cystic yeah, fibrosis yeah. i think there's like a the de- deletion um mm. it's a single it's a single deletion, mutation single a point or is it single it's mutation? a single point i think that that causes a... but it's 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 a it's a mutation that is present in a lot of patients so how do you do you know? that so, like then then that CRISPR treatment would make sense because loads of people can uh, mm-hmm. can uh, uh, benefit from it. But like notice here, this CRISPR therapy was designed not to directly correct the faulty gene, but rather mm. to promote development of a, of a kind of alternative yeah, yeah, hemoglobin. Yeah. And that's what makes it a universal treatment for two diseases. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So you, couldn't re- you don't really have that of, in other... It's hard yeah. to... So that's why that's why gene replacement therapy, like mRNA, on which I'm working, it's uh, it might look just a little bit more attractive for the larger population, uh, pharmaceutical, yeah, for yeah. Pharmaceuticals no, I, I to t- invest money. I totally develop. agree. Yeah, I think you can see the potential from the vaccines. Like, wh- wh- I think if we can, like, because it's so intensive and a lot of work, if we can get a a, a drug that can actually just replace the whole effective mRNA or or something like that that would be so I think we will get to the point where we are as a society and we are able to develop very personalized treatments you know for mm. for for people and and we will get there but it's not gonna be in next five or ten years I think it's a kind of a futuristic outlook but uh, right now I think what is attractive for development and what can generate money are genetic treatments or molecular treatments that could be applied to white population of people because remember that the genetic treatments are already classified as rare diseases so it's uh, it's it's already just a very very selected number of people who suffers from these diseases and then if you further um uh, yeah, if you further streamline which people can and cannot uh, get the treatment that's that's gonna be even less yeah. and less people yeah okay um but good news, yeah, yeah. CRISPR news, is yeah, yeah. Uh, in clinics yeah. now uh on that note then thanks for that news story no problem yeah so w- tell us about your news story then uh was it preventative right. medicine rather than curative medicine preventive rather than curative or both or what is it in general so actually i uh, the initial inspiration for this topic stemmed from the conversation i had with my new housemate mm. here so shout out to him you know we Shout out. Well, we were just talking about my PhD and my current work. And, and he said, uh, he asked you, you a question know. that made you question your whole point. Uncomfortable. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. So basically, he is a, 
like he was a strong had a strong opinions about the limitations of curative medicine and uh, he emphasizing the insufficient focus on preventive approaches. You know that was like that was something that he mentioned, and I don't think he's wrong saying that. Uh, he talked about how uh, personalized and specialized diets can positively impact human health, which I, I like I agree with this extent. as well. And, to certain extent, and he highlighted the uh, disparity in the medical system that you know they we tend to prioritize fixing rather than uh, proactive pro- being proactive about preventing certain injuries. So we were like talking, talking about this, and you know, at certain point, I was like, I have to admit that I have a limited knowledge in in this sphere of like preventive versus creative medicine. Mm. So I was like, um, I thought to myself, okay, I want to look into more into it because as he was talking in my head, all I could think in like preventive medicine is just the likes of uh, high-end po- yeah. podcasters uh, pushing their supplements. Yeah, oh, totally. Know? That's what I, and I, and the bits to these fitness people who say like, oh, if you, if you don't want to stop yourself getting sick, all you have to do is be like, just make sure you're act- active exercise and eat healthily. And it's like... That won't really everyone gets sick like it doesn't stop you yeah like i'm sure i've covid has shown that it doesn't matter how healthy you are you still can't will get yeah. sick so like that's that's the way i like I, what that's, what, that's so, what i'm that's what i'm thinking straight away when when i'm being told like oh yeah but like there's you just have to eat healthy and and be active do go to the gym and you'll be fine like and it's like no it's not that simple that's super simplistic way of looking at things i think i think this is like just a, a, a an evident that we listen to the same people mm. uh, and look at the similar reddit uh, like subreddits <laughs> and we just we just have a, a similar outlook on 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 this because yeah but, that's yeah. exactly what I, I i'm not saying like, they're wrong that like, just a scam. I, I do think being healthy and exercising regularly is a good thing for your health for your mental health and physical health but like to say it it helps everything isn't i just don't agree as a preventative i don't 100 percent agree but like there's yeah just some exceptions to the rule but anyways sorry so go ahead no perfect so i kind of um i kind of divided this topic into digestible bits uh, so i think i i will shortly cover the foundation of pre- preventive medicine and then we're gonna switch to landscape of the curative medicine and then this all will lead us into the entanglement and entanglement between the prevention and cure uh, and finally, the race of supplementation scam, which is something <laughs> that I am most that. excited about. Yes, I, I, definitely. So to 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 kick off, the uh, the pre- preventive medicine focuses on proactively maintaining health and avoiding the onset of disease. And this is something that you have even mentioned. You know, like the lifestyle modifications, being healthy, eating healthy, exercising. But and this is the area that is kind of a bit shadowy for us, you know, where there's loads of room for scam. But preventive medicine also involves uh, vaccinations, uh, regular screenings, health screenings, and health med edu- and health education. And this is like the aspect of preventive medicine that wasn't on the top of my mind when I heard yeah. that term, you know. So the goal is to promote the overall well-being, reduce the risk of disease, and detect potential health issues at uh, in early yeah. stages. Yeah. On the other hand, curative medicine concerned with treatment and management of existing diseases and conditions and focuses on prov- on providing medical care, 
and uh, intervention to elevate symptoms and cure diseases. Basically, if you broke and curative medicine will yeah, attempt to yeah. bring you back to the to the base. But level. yeah, I think pre- preventative. It's like it's it's a sign of like your public health system in any country. Like if you have a good public health system, then you it's a good. Um, they have good uh, policies for preventative. Um, for preventative health like health so um basically it promotes good health policies so it would stop prevent people getting ill so um that's what i i would have always associate um preventative medicine like with public health measures yeah and there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of public health things that I, we will talk about but as I my my understanding of preventive medicine at the time of that conversation was very okay. limited, and I just stream like just tunnel vision about stamps, <laughs> right. and that that's all I saw, you know. And um, so indeed, this is just this is what you said. the The foundation of preventive medicines are built on two core ideas. These include the health protection and health improvement. So in the health protection. Uh, bracket we have primary prevention and that focuses on preventing disease from developing uh, from developing including various health promotion and protection activities and i think a good example of this like is anti-smoking campaign mm. this is like a strong preventive measure to protect people from developing lung cancer and between 2012 and 2018 more than 16 million people who smoke have attempted to quit and approximately 1 million have successfully quit because of exposure to anti-smoking yeah, yeah, campaigns. Yeah. So that's a good public um, health That's measure. good public health. And, you know, these these actions, they saved, saved an estimate of $7.3 billion in smoking-related health costs. Yeah. So, brilliant. Very good. Okay, yeah. that's a great example of preventive uh, medicine being used. Another thing is, uh, and then we have the secondary prevention, and that involves early identification of diseases and preventing them from worsening once initial symptoms appear. And screening programs and vaccinations are great example. Yeah. You know, we we've talked a lot about vaccinations here, so there's no no point to to repeat that message. But the whole spiel about mRNA vaccines being good for COVID, uh, any form of vaccine that is approved by the regulatory agencies is and should be administered yeah, to people. And, if they and, and I know so. we mentioned it last, it was like a controversy with the, the Nobel Prize, but the cervical cancer screen, like that's that was a, an amazing public health measure brought in oh, yeah. for people. Um, cervical, um, it's all, they're all like involved in preventative health. Did you did you go through my notes because I was actually wanted to mention no, the cervical no, no. Uh, screen I know, cancer I just, and I, I just, it was it's just something I'm aware, I'm aware, well there's a yeah. well in Ireland anyways there was a big um, controversy with cervical smear check um, I think it it got definitely it got the whole the whole scheme got painted with a bad brush I'm not saying that right but um, yeah. I remember yeah it, it basically then I think. A lot of women got missed the for cer- their cervical smears got mischecked, shouldn't che- didn't get checked correctly, and then when they checked them back, rechecked them, they they identified then that they actually did have um signs of cervical cancer, and the, and I think a lot it kind of 
ended up like a lot of women thought that it wasn't worth doing that it, it, like the risk of uh missing getting missed diagnosed or um missed in general that it, it wasn't worth the the risk mm. to do it well it wasn't risk but to the 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 process of doing it and i think it was a a kind of a setback in a way for that thing but i think for that scheme so i think yeah. people now they've people who i think families of these women who have since died like because they've come out and said look it is we want people to just still get their cervical checked on it's still a very important um scheme to do to like make sure you're not getting missed cervical cancer isn't getting missed if you have it so yeah and i think this is like thank you for actually mentioning this because that that leads me into the paper published in the European Journal of Cancer in 2020, when they actually look at the effect of organized cervical cancer screening uh, on cervical cancer mortality in Europe. It was a it was a review, and uh, what we the highlight of this paper the highlights of this paper included that uh, studies showed a 41 to 92 percent mortality reduction um. after attending cervical screening. So basically, it means the the decrease in mortality depends on how well your mm, your system yeah. is set up in the country you know so it does work but the effectiveness of it depends on whether it's well designed yeah. you know yeah. so but like there's always that uh, that it's the whole sensitivity specificity like do you want to overcall ones and then they're getting treatment that they don't need or are you going to potentially undercall um uh screens that maybe then they go on and do develop cervical cancer there's there, mm. there's never going to be that's the whole thing. You're never going to get a perfect system unless a super intensive um, uh, procedure in place, which no country really has. So um, that's just the, the reality of, of these screening programs. Yeah. So Indeed. But yeah, but that's, that's so amazing that was, like, to see that it has yeah. such a huge benefit. Like, like 92% in some countries, that's a yeah. lot, you know, reduction yeah. in mortality. So that was the, the so that was the primary, pri primary and secondary prevention under the health protection initiative. And now we have the health improvement. And this, this topic uh, involves processing, involves process that empower individual to enhance their current health and man manage health, health risks for overall well-being. And whereas in the first uh, topic that we discussed in the health protection scheme, there's a very little room to introduce like a scamming yeah. behavior, you know, because it's very scientific based. You know, you have the anti-smoking campaigns. Uh, they're usually uh, some proactive measures. They're usually measures. backed by the government. They're government promoted yes. campaigns, isn't it? Well, as the health improvement, that's where uh, something can uh, something malicious can sneak in, you know. Um, so I just want to put put it out this out there. Uh, we will circle back to that topic, but uh, yeah, health improvement is the I'd say is the vulnerability aspect of the preventive uh, preventive medicine. And uh, just to mention um, uh, the landscape of curative medicine, so we briefly covered the preventive side. Uh, as I mentioned, the curative uh, medicine, the primary goal is to address the specific health issues that individuals are facing. And it can involve a range of interventions from prescribing medications uh, to performing surgeries, um, you know, therapies, both, and there are both traditional and innovative therapies that play crucial role in restoring health and functionality. And here we have uh, things like precision medicine, 
uh, this is one of these new advancements, something that we just have talked about, you know, CRISPR-Cas9 editing. We have immunotherapies, that's another uh, huge area in the cancer treatment, but this is just an, different umbrellas of uh, curative okay. medicine. Yeah, um, it all boils down to uh, two challenge. For me, it all boils down to two challenges associated with curative medicine. If we have to put, if we have to put prevention versus uh, cur uh, curative treatments, first one is treatment cost, and this is something that you know we already mentioned with the CRISPR-Cas9. The cost of curative treatments, especially for chronic, complex diseases or genetic treatments, can be prohibitively high. And this financial mm. burden poses challenges for both individuals as well as the healthcare systems, potentially limiting access to these life-saving interventions. Yeah. So I think this is a, this is like a point point toward the preventive medicine. If with like simple steps and simple checks, you can prevent something that in the long run might cost you might cost you or the mm, government yeah, yeah. like millions, yeah. you know. So and it's it's crap that it's you're. Great the governments have to decide like way up the option of like we can say if how many lives do we have to save for this to be cost efficient because you would always like any life saved would be a cost effective but it's not that's not how it works so yeah unfortunately and then you know the the other aspect is uh in in the context of this discussion that we have in is healthcare inequality mm. So there's disparities in access to advanced medical treatment can exist, creating inequalities in healthcare, you know, socioeconomical factors, geographical loca locations and systemic issues contribute to dif differential access to curative interventions. And I think this is nothing new, but I think it's important to highlight, you know, that, um, you know, geographical, we, we, we already discussed the socioeconomic factors, but the geographical locations, you know, if you find yourself in the developing country, your chances of getting access to, uh, to effective curative treatment, to effective treatment is, is, yeah, is so lower. slim, it's so narrow, it's almost impossible. And again, it, it shouldn't be like that. But in the same time, I think it's very, very difficult in these developing countries to have very well functioning public health system with strong preventive mm, yeah. measures being uh, being advocated you know and and yeah and the um, problem is is then they're just like isn't it plugging holes in a a sinking ship like you're you're only solving trying to try treat the issue when the problems come up whereas if they ha but like that's just the, the, the symptom of them not having the money to to implement these preventative yeah. measures or, or or uh yeah as you mentioned um it's just just difficult but i you, you know there is it a chance of you know in, in introducing good uh, campaigns and you know advocating preventive treatment in this in these countries do you think that like that would have any effect or i think or it's, it's it just, just all comes down to cost isn't it i think um a lot of the time they just don't have the money to like implement these these schemes so um, they need to be, they need to be effective, but they also need to be cost saving that they, that they, that they can implement it and that it, that it wouldn't be a huge amount. Mm. Like that's the, that's the gold standard really. If it's something that's technically like, for example, like cervical smears, like that's a pretty intensive, expensive, tr um, scheme to have in like col the colal, colorectal, colal cancer screening as well. That's another one that's quite a, mm. an intensive 
one like it's just it's just not like it's the it, it regardless of how how good it works it's just that they can't afford it so it's just they, they can't really bring it in yeah and and that's just the li- the limitation of this these these um, schemes like they can't simplify them anymore they can't make them any more cost of reductive so if they can't then what what are you, where are you meant to go like they can't they can't what can the country do if they don't have the money to implement it so i think that's the problem um with yeah developing countries third world countries yeah. it's just it's tough it's tough for them but you know, I was I was watching a, I was watching a documentary there actually yesterday um, about uh, uh, Glasgow. Well, not exactly a developing country. Yeah, it's, uh, well, it's in the UK, Scot- Scotland. But you know, it was about it was about these uh, these very underprivileged estates. Mm. You know, like the council flats and and this and that. And you know, they were like uh, this guy was like interviewing a bunch of lads from this was area. Was this like all... recent or was it like back in back a while ago? No, it's quite okay. recent. It's quite recent. And the guy and, you know, the, these people were telling their experiences when they like start using heavy drugs, mm, uh, yeah. like in their early teens, you know, and early drug use leads to like serious health complica- complications. And so they were he was walking around these flats, around these estates, and they only they were only able to found like one boxing gym. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, that was like that was like the boxing was a means to 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 drag these people, these teens out from the street, out from crime. drug abuse and, and crime and in general, poor, poor health habits into, you know, get into the gym, start training. Um, if you want to box, then you have to like. You definitely have to stop smoking. You definitely have to stop. But even just drugs. Not, like just to have an activity to like yeah. keep you to keep you busy to keep you out of that. Like regardless of like just so, the health benefits, it's just to like simply have an activity to keep them out of trouble. Like that's that yeah. simple of a. So if Glasgow only had, if he was mm. only able to find one. Uh, it doesn't have to be a boxing gym. Any sort of yeah, outreach yeah. Oh, yeah. center. They were they were only able to find one in uh, in these around the area where he was in these uh, unprivileged flats. So, like, what are the chances of finding something like that? You know, uh, in Africa, yeah. in yeah, in in these really developing countries, like you know. So maybe okay, it would be nice to have these screening facilities and stuff. But like, if you can't do that, can can we just like can we just help yeah, them? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, implementing these facilities that will promote health, uh, healthy yeah, behaviors. Yeah, yeah, and, yeah, you know? yeah. Oh, yeah. Like it's, yeah. What we are, we well, what I was talking about is very high level, but like something low level is that. Like yeah. that's all encompassing, and um, yeah. That's again, you just need you need to have a ambitious public health system that that that, that that can come up with ways of of uh helping improve improve all aspects of society um yeah. and it, it, yeah it's just simple things like that that maybe places don't think of think people don't think of um yeah well i guess it's easy to say or oh, build an outreach center but like if there's a civil war going yeah. on like how much of a news it is it's funny be. you know how okay. you mentioned anyway. Glasgow. you know an interesting fact yeah and i because i mentioned it um but in the, my story with the life expectancy life expectancy in glasgow is like the low one of the lowest in the uk like traditionally it was always because of the as you mentioned the drug use the crime mm-hmm. the poverty in the city but like even as the city has got improved like the like it's become more built up and the the class are 
uh, low income has kind of improved, like people have earned more money, it's still, uh, the life expectancy is still really low. And it's like a paradox. They don't know why it still has such a low life expectancy in Glasgow compared to other other major cities in yeah. the UK. Because um, like now things are have improved a lot with like poverty and stuff. And yeah, it's still a, a thing. So it's kind of a, it's an interesting. It's interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Why? Why Glasgow? Well, yeah. It's, uh, it's, it's a, had a lot of okay. problems. So anyways. <laughs> That that brings me to uh, the bridge or entanglement between the preventive and curative medicine, just to get back on the topic. So, uh, the main purpose of preventive medicine is to influence uh, on reduction of the demand for curative intervention. I think that's fair. Yeah. We established that. To bring back what was already mentioned, healthy lifestyle, appropriate vaccinations, commitment, and commitment to regular screening leads to a better... Uh, defense system in terms like immune system against potential health threats and minimizes the likelihood of individuals requiring extensive curative treatments grant uh, preventive measures found to be beneficial in mitigating and elevating symptoms of infectious diseases and this comes down to basic things like hygiene personal hygiene and vaccination but also cardiac conditions and diabetes and that was like and i think where we all know that like washing your hands and uh, just being not a filthy person <laughs> clean, helps yeah. you not to being clean helps you not to get sick same as vaccination vaccination i was really interesting about these uh, cardiac disease whether there is anything out there that shows that good preventive medicine uh, behave good um, st- that sticking to good preventive medicine uh, uh, um bullet points will will prevent you from you know then developing healthy developing uh, cardiac diseases yeah Yeah. so one of those for example arterial stiffness is a predictive factor uh, for the onset of acute or chronic cardiovascular diseases in recent year in 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 recent years statins Mm. have been the most prescribed drug drugs worldwide for primary preventions of uh, cvd which is the chronic cardiovascular disease. Um, uh, they, uh, their lipid, because of their lipid lowering effects. So lower lipids, they don't, uh, they don't accumulate along the arteries. So the arteries don't become stiffness, so on and so forth. Uh, however, statins have been associated with adverse effects in certain patient populations. These adverse effects include muscle pain and uh, debatable risk of developing diabetes. Mm. An alternative to statins are regular exercise, like regular physical exercise, which is like super simple. And this definitely falls under the umbrella of preventive medicine. So I came across a meta-analysis that compares the effect of physical exercise uh, versus statins on improving arterial stiffness in patients with high cardiometabolic risk. So this, uh, they include the scientists who work on that study. They included a total of 22 studies uh, that uh, including the analysis, uh, which were 18 randomized control trials and four non-randomized control, uh, f- four non-randomized experimental studies. The, the whole the whole thing included 1,307 patients with high cardiometabolic risk from Asia, Oce- Oceania, Europe, North America, and South America. So basically, Worldwide. I think the 
covered everything except for Africa. Yeah. Um, so the meta-analysis revealed that both moderate statins dose and high-intensity exercise are effective approaches for reducing arterial stiffness. Although many appropriately selected patients could benefit from statins for reducing CV CVD risk, the results support that considering the beneficial effects of high-intensity exercise on arterial stiffness, it would be worthwhile to refocus the attention of this type of exercise as an effective tool for prevention of CVD. Yeah. So now not only we have like this kind of a logical, uh, the logically mm -hmm. derived conclusion that like, of course, exercise is good for you, but there is actually, uh, there are actually studies that have been analyzed and compared to each other that also, uh, also show that, give that, uh, give us that evidence that high intensity exercise is as good as, uh, statins, as statins, yeah. Yeah. statin treatment. Not to say that uh, I think statins you know, shouldn't be used. Like I think if you can use it and you're if you're at risk and you can use it without the be the 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 side effects, I think it's definitely a great again preventative yeah. measure. Um, but yeah, obviously, like that's that's something you, there's always a risk when you're taking a drug. Like simple things like exercising is is something that should be tried to to be sought after for people. Um. But then not to, I don't think, I don't think we should also confuse that, uh, you, because once you develop the disease, when, once you're in the thick of it, like, you know, I don't think that exercising in itself will yeah, be enough. Yeah, like, you know, yeah, I think it, what should be promoted but that stage is during the disease stage, lifelong anyways, commitment. So, yeah, yeah. Where we're like a lifelong commitment to exercise will, will help you to maybe avoid the getting to the point where you do have yeah, to yeah. start using the statins, you know? Because like once you're in it, then I suppose you, you if you can if you if you can not use statins, then okay. Of course talk to your physicians. But uh, you know, then certain medical intervention has to be yeah, yeah. implemented. But like there there is people who are in the red are are dot obese that would still have to take it because they're just from genetic reasons. So um, Yeah, yeah, yeah. But yeah, if you're in a disease state then it's it can be too late to do the physical exercise so but I'm, yeah like yeah, i'm just not trying but yeah mm -hmm. just like for physical education it's physical education yeah you, you kind of need to implement these policies early earlier in their life as early as you can in their life that's why it's really important to have kids uh promote them into health healthy yeah. uh like exercise get them to do sports sign them out of sports exactly yeah and, and then like they that. can can, yeah. like it's there's so much more there's so many benefits from it but like i think the health to to keep them health i think yeah generally if you play sports when you're a kid it's something you're going to try and keep up as you as you get yeah. older to try and keep yourself healthy um so yeah so i yeah and how do you feel about like you know fit people on telly promoting <laughs> uh do, do you think that it's it actually would convince someone to get off the couch and start doing it mm. or do you think this no. is more kind of in your face i'm better than you kind of a situation well uh, like there's no there's no there's no black and white thing it can help some people cut but like how would you promote how would you convince someone who, who needs it okay they don't have the disease oh. yet they are aware um they they kind of know mm. that you know maybe they don't want to get on these yeah it's uh, it's it's, it's, it's hard medication it's hard because you have to get them to uh to admit it to themselves or try and to to make the change themselves and uh hmm. like it's hard to to how to how do you target them or how do you get them to 
to to want to change or want to become more active so i don't know it's like if that's if the people if public health knew what that what to do then i i I think it's just trying maybe at work try and get people from promote people to do uh walking just walking groups or anything Mm -hmm. like that try try and like in any area that that there's in that there's a like some kind of a a center where they run activities during the like week yeah i know where i'm from like in the in a small village they usually have like classes on during the week like some like maybe yoga or they do like rowing exercises or like just general exercises during the week so that people just can come up do their do like me it's a socializing thing as well they can meet other people but also as a way to keep them active um so i think that kind of thing because i guess it's still hard because um people are can be lazy they don't want to they don't want to do it so like yeah it's hard it's hard but like just trying to promote just try i think it's the the best thing is to have have resources available and just try and advertise as best as you can and and like that's all you can do like it's up to the person themselves if they want to do it or not um because i just think you know when the anti-smoking campaigns nobody nobody is um against you know like showing the images of like how your teeth can look after you smoke for like 10 15 Mm. years or images of you know disgusting lungs or like oh your breath smells like this and that but then with the kind of the exercise thing and the obesity thing like you know imagine what would happen if people would be this is how you're gonna look after 15 years of eating chips and mcdonald's you know and just a picture of someone morbidly obese like that's gonna cause a big backlash that's gonna people yeah there's gonna be a backlash over that but then so that's what i think with the smoking it's just a bit easier like just look how disgusting (laughs) i'm not saying that obesity is disgusting but look how disgusting you're gonna you're gonna be uh if you keep smoking cigarettes and there's like yeah right i'm i'm just gonna maybe reduce or stop or you know look for whatever but then with the exercise thing like you can't just show someone no it's it's wrong if you if you get fit people advertising it and it's wrong if you if you fat shame not intentional well it is intentional yeah exactly that's what you you can't really do that so like i think you just have to be i think it it has to be more like hands off approach or you just have to let them decide themselves and and i don't know yeah and implement yeah i get with that's just with the exercise part there's there's a whole other thing with like trying to get them to eat healthy (laughs) yeah okay well that's uh this is the the entanglement of preventive versus mm. curative. There's, I think, there's definitely room to uh, to promote more healthy behaviors to you know, so that yeah, people yeah. don't end up with these critical diseases. And I think a lot of it also relies on GPs being maybe better trained in terms mm. of uh, nutrients and and exercise benefits. Yeah. Because I I guess it's easy for them just to see a patient what's wrong with you here here are the yeah, pills yeah, we starting yeah, the treatment but, but i, I don't know, I, it's, it, it shouldn't takes... also fall to a gp to be able to do that that there should be other like resources in the community that they can go to to, to dietitian yeah, or nutri- yeah. nutritionist they should be available in the gp practices yeah, where you can have yeah, a consultation yeah, with that person yeah. as well i think you know um especially with the trained ones not the youtube yeah. ones uh tiktok <laughs> ones but anyway off to the my favorite yeah. topic the rise of supplementation scam i've i'm i love this so uh, you know so far we've been attempting to highlight the merit of preventive medicines 
however, it is important to recall that at the beginning of the podcast, I'd mentioned like I had this negative connotations with the concept of the preventive medicine. There's this, there's this room where these scams can be introduced. And, you know, this segment has been influenced in part by the surge in scams within the supplementary industry. So the, mis the misuse of terms like medical grade serum, probiotic, facial creams, skin detoxifying, all of these kind of uh, terminology for me has eroded the concept of the public, public yeah. trust. Uh, in the in the preventive medicine, you know, at least in my in my perspective, uh, you know, if you visit the supplement section, um, you will encounter promises of like immunity support, hormone balance, energy enhancement, and all of that bullshit. Like, yeah. you know, it's awful. So I just picked one one example, and I, I'm just gonna focus on this one here. Okay. So they, as I said, the industry has witnessed a surge in scams where unscrupulous manufacturers make false claims about the efficacy of their products. Whether it's promising miracles, health benefits, weight loss, or prevention of disease, these scams prey on individuals seeking preventive measures. And there's nothing wrong with that. You know, people want to get better quickly. I think, I, I think the whole thing stems from, like, people want to... Uh, don't trust the system so they want to do it like be a natural way of like I can do this I can oh, do that's... this on my own I can my body is a temple my body is capable of amazing things I can do I, why can't I manage this on my own so yeah and because your body is so amazing you take kilograms of supplements yeah great great logical leap there lad uh, so I want to hear, I want to focus on the, on the athletic greens. I don't know if you ever heard well, it's, of <laughs> athletic greens. I think it's, it's a common sponsor for a lot of shows and stuff. Exactly. It's a company that is very popular among influencers and high end podcasters. So the athletic greens, they sell green powder containing 75 vitamins, minerals, whole foods, superfoods, Super probiotics. Foods and adaptogens in one, this is all taken yeah. from their website, adaptogens all in one serving, okay? In UK and EU, the cost is between 97 pounds and 170 Jesus. euro per, per, per the sachet that you get from them, okay? The company claims that the daily use of this green powder supports energy levels, immune health, gut health, health aging, and hormonal and neural health. Neural health, why not? <laughs> With so many health claims, you would think that this has to be regulated by the FDA or EMA or broadly or, or some regulatory yeah. body. Uh, but, uh, you know, uh, FDA definitely, and as from what I have read, e EMA as well, they, broadly speaking, consider things like Athletic Greens and other supplementary companies uh, as an extension to uh, basically uh, extension to food. Yeah, yeah. Therefore, the strict regulations do not apply right. to them. They are not... It's not a medicine. Uh, they don't... They, they, it's, not, it's not seen as a medicine. The, the claims do not have to be tested, do not have to be proven. There's definitely not mention of clinical yeah. trials that can prove these things, you know? And most of it is like you have a one, uh, one study that proved something <laughs> With a p-value barely yeah, below yeah. the 0 0.05, and like, and this is what they base their claims on, which is like absolutely ridiculous. So, does the athletic greens have any benefit? 
on a personal level, maybe, you know, if you choose to believe it, it because it's your favorite <laughs> influencer convince you uh, to spend money on it, then sure, it, it has a benefit for you. But don't forget, he's saying he or she are saying this only because they yeah, get yeah, paid yeah. for saying that. So, you know, so to be fair, maybe it is a good idea if you have more than enough money to spend and you travel a lot and you don't like eating <laughs> green vegetables, then sure. Get, get that, you know? But well, I think there's easier ways than spending, what, 100 pounds on, on, yeah, uh, on well, like just basically uh, a, green a green powder. powder. Mm. So, uh, on the con side, uh, on the con side, I have a few which include, first of all, lack of research to confirm safety or effectiveness. Mm. It's expensive. Uh, the supplement does not contain contain vitamin D or iron, and I'm just wow, being picky here at this point D. because God. if they have 75 working ingredients, why not vitamin D and yeah. iron? Yeah, and then, like they're know? pretty uh, like they're ones you actually do need. I take vitamin D, like so you'd want. Yeah. that's like if I was to take any supplement, that's a pretty important one because it's a useful one, not like vitamin vitamin B12, like. <laughs> that's in everything I, I, like. I, I supplement amino acids that I can't get uh, from my vegetable uh, yeah. diet you know so if because some of the they're just limited qualities quantities so I supplement but like you but have to be eat, you have uh, to be most probably eating an absolutely dire have a dire diet for this to be beneficial because you would get this from generally most foods are supplemented already with it so yeah so, you know, what else on this list? It does not list exact ingredients amounts for proprietary blends. So you don't really know what you get in. Uh, may cause upset to stomach, may cause diarrhea and bloating. I'm just being really picky because I don't yeah. like them, okay? Uh, not appropriate for many people, including those who are pregnant, breastfeeding, or taking certain prescription medications. Because if you have 75 <laughs> working ingredients, some of them can react with, uh, with the medications yeah, that you are yeah. on. And, you know, if you, if you are taking 75 active, uh, active ingredients, like it's very hard to make the science of how everything is reacting with each other because you just, there's yeah, so yeah, many yeah. of them, you know, uh, you know, the many health claims, the company claims that AG1 helps support energy, immunity, again, gut health, hormonal and neuronal support, uh, account, ac according to many more benefits on their website. So there is no one ever calling them out like, oh, this is a scam. Don't get it. Obviously, it's a well-prospering company. Loads of podcasters uh, uh, advertise them and they're being sponsored by them. But I just think this is a this is the exact type of scam I was looking for because it is not, it hasn't been scam. Like, you're going to call it outright uh, scam. Is it, I, I think it's a scam because, but the difference is they haven't been called out, you know, by by anyone but this is just like they promise you something that is unachievable mm. you know you can't you can't get all of these things because you drink a scoop of athletic green mm -hmm. every morning like it's just it's illogical yeah. Yeah, yeah and so there is so this brings me to the end of this uh of this this uh section so now having read all of that i do believe that preventive medicine is beneficial when it when it's grounded in science mm, yeah. and when it's supported by science, 100%. I do I do think that you know visiting a dietitian or nutri nutritionist when you have a diabetes to help you put together a diet that maybe 
you will be able to lose some weight and kind of prevent furthering severing to further severe the condition. This is a form of preventive yeah. medicine. I believe that I don't have to believe this works. This 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 is from this this works. But then it takes a little bit from it takes a little bit from you as well. Like you have to commit, for example, to the diet. You have to stick to what the dietitian yeah. uh, tells you. I don't I don't think preventive medicine in the sense of like drink athletic green once a day and you're gonna be a superhuman. Mm. I think that's bullshit. And I think they they're ripping people yeah. off. And I think th- and I think the the only the only reason they are so popular is because they they manage to wiggle their way into all of these influencers, mm-hmm. the TikTokers and podcasters. And then, you know, people listen to these to these people and they idolize them in a certain way. And like if they say like if I do it, yeah then, and you know, look at them, they're so successful, I'm gonna do it as well. But don't you don't you forget for a second that these people are being paid to say yeah. these things. And whether they take those athletic greens or not, you've never seen them on the camera drinking yeah. it, right? Or maybe if you have, it was only for the advertisement purposes. Yeah, yeah. So Yeah, I do think just, um this it th- there is a it's a weird time now with preventative like people like, oh you can um to to keep yourself healthy, eat healthy, exercise re- healthily. That's all you need to do. You don't need to do all this other stuff. And it's like there's this um, shady area now where people are, but like it's all existed all throughout history, like with diets and everything. Like the snake. Yeah, ice. there's it's yeah. always getting exploited. So like people are, are always exploiting this um, need for like self improvement health improvement and and like throwing super loads of buzzwords into into uh products to say like it'll help you be healthier um it will help you prevent you get you prevent you get help you prevent you getting sick i think that's another the big a big claim so um and people always want to be more like it's such a especially on left-wing people where they like it's like a hippie like oh i can just live off the earth i can like listen to listen to my body listen to what it needs i need like i can just drink natural i only want natural products in my body i don't want any gmos i just want healthy natural products and like this is where this is these snake oils or these scams are directly targeting these people because they're trying to like get to these people who don't trust the system don't trust big pharma companies drugs they want um natural products that's like oh it's naturally in your body you make this already so by you taking this supplement you're not introducing some chemical like that stays forever in your body like you're it's like it's a cleansing one it's detoxifies it and uh, and it's like Yeah. yeah this is what these all these these natural health companies do um and yeah it's 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 kind of it. It can it can have it bad effect. It it kind of can um smear the whole public health campaigns under one bad umbrella because it makes it feel like uh eating taking some of these supplements is the same as like actually having proper listening to diets and uh, proper exercise yeah. and getting vaccines and all that kind of stuff. They they're all yeah. So it's. It's it's kind of like the way that is they exploit this this area of like self improvement, self help, natural health, self health, and uh, there's not. It's very hard to to stop it, like because people there's always people who are like that who want to be more natural, more um, less 
chemicals, more natural chemicals. So, um, are you telling me, Evan, that you're not <laughs> one of those people who wake up in the morning to collect the morning <laughs> juice so you can drink no, it later? No, I don't. I don't do that. <laughs> I um, yeah, but I think I think I think you sums sums it up pretty well. Um, something that I was trying to get at, you know, with this. Uh, with all of this let's go let's go back to nature let's be natural let's just let's uh, feed my body on the natural yeah. way i think it's, it's such a, uh, like we were let's be a, a cave we were cavemen let's let's live like cavemen do like that's how they they had no health problems it's like what's the what, what, what are, are you not? talking about <laughs> like they only ate, they only Have you meat, ever seen so the skeleton? We, we should only eat meat like that and they did great it's like why are we basing health decisions like, off you stuff wouldn't that survive. like <laughs> from thousands of years ago it doesn't survive but we learn things all the time like like they walk yeah. well how many day like 10 over i'd say like 50 kilometers a day like are you going to go walk 10 kilometers a day no because that doesn't suit your narrative <laughs> it's uh it's crazy it's a complete mis uh misunderstanding yeah. but the, the last thing concepts. i wanted to ask like so go back Go on. circle your housemate told you yes. about this do you, so do you think uh which side perspective was he coming from with preventative medicine was he coming from a more the the good public health measures that actually are based in science or in the non-scientific based or can you comment i won't lean towards them he was talking a lot about uh, uh dieting and the benefits of uh, well-cooked mm, foods yeah, and balanced yeah, yeah. diet and stuff like that which i think <laughs> there is there is something to it but you know yeah yeah you know yeah me. so there is i i think these people who are the most outspoken about it are are based in the non-scientific ways they're never going to shout out about like get vaccinated or uh take up take up active well actually they would say take up activity but i'm sure they're like it's all about food and oh you yeah, should you eat this kind of a diet or don't eat don't take sup don't sorry they do say take compliments they don't say don't take um i don't know <laughs> certain bit oh no but like he's not he's not like yeah. anti-science or anything like that it's just like I, I i see it more as a kind of a hobby thing like yeah. you know having a uh like having a hobby trying to have a well-balanced and die well-balanced diet mm. and look into like the nutrition side of it it's just like i don't think it's a magic bullet that that will yeah, yeah. and i do think and know? i think the last point i would say is like it's it's just it is shady when people are generally fooled into thinking if they have a cardio i don't know like actual diagnosed with diseases like diabetes or um heart problems or something like that that they can get out of it by just following these non-scientific methods of of for for treatment like so that they could just say oh i mean if i eat certain way or if i drink certain drinks or if i yeah uh do certain methods uh, that this will help me it's like no we need to you need to at this stage then you need to look at 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 science-based methods this is where it's proven not like oh i'm just gonna like eat green foods the whole time it's like no um, and and one peer review study done on 15 people doesn't mean that it's a confirmed yeah, and effect. Yeah, anecdotal like, is you know, like, so oh, even... I was taking that drug and it just, I, but then I switched to <laughs> eating meat or eating this thing and it helped me a lot. 
It's like no, they, that's yeah. That's like, just what one does that person. mean? Like, um, yeah. So yeah, it's yeah. it's uh, it can be a minefield. Definitely, don't but don't I, trust anyone. I, I would I would just say don't trust anyone that you see a video. Make sure you trust them before you tr- take their word for anything they advertise any product. Um, yeah. it, and any, if they make if it seems too good to be true, it definitely is too good to be true. Like that's a word. That's ba- yeah, basically. Advice. If it if it if a supplement promises you everything, it probably yeah. does not. <laughs> yeah, happen. yeah, exactly. So yeah, okay. You you really laid into them snake oil alternative medicine i I, I hate them with passion (laughs) there's there's like i don't hate many people but i hate many things and athletic (laughs) greens is one of them like you know was that chris Chris talk about athletic greens chris kavanagh uh i think they mentioned them as well but uh, there's one like mma podcast that i listen to and they and they keep bringing them up over and like i always skip when they talk about those like they they're excellent mma commentators but like i hate when they try to push that on you like you okay know? so they and this is are they getting paid to do that oh okay. yeah of course. right yeah. um but yeah so it's i was today's what i talked about um the u.s infant mortality rising for the first time in 20 years and uh you give us a good overview of the the first the, uh approved crispr based medicine for sickle cell and thalassemias and then you also give yeah. us a good overview of preventative versus curative medicine and and what to look out for and to be skeptical as we full circle in the name um yeah <laughs> i hope you enjoyed today's episode um we, we, we enjoyed it and i think for the next next month in december i think what we're going to do is just do a an overview of the science for the year give a, our highlights of uh of what we we found for the past year um i think that'd be a good uh roundup of the year science um yeah. yeah so yeah that's, okay. that's it for today yeah. guys I uh, will talk to you again if you want to reach out to us uh, you can also reach follow us on Instagram Skeptically Inclined tw- or Twitter or X now at Skeptically I and if you want to reach out by email at Skeptically Inclined at gmail.com Skeptically with a C so yeah um, have a good one guys take care yeah thank you for listening stay skeptical bye